world. The past first point guard and Trailblazers reporter Mike Richmond, you are listening to another episode of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts and also on YouTube. Thanks for making the show your first listen. We're back five days a week, wherever you get podcasts. So why not tell your friends and make it part of your daily routine? So then you and your homies will have something to talk about. It's Locked On Blazers, your team every day. Today's show, a very special one, a super fun one indeed. Bob Witsit, former Bla- Trailblazers GM, who ran the team for nine years from the middle 90s to the to the middle 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, constructed, you know, winning teams, was the architect of the drill, of the Jailblazers, traded away Clyde Drexler at the beginning of his tenure, uh, someone with unique and special insight into what it's like to run a team and specifically run your Portland Trailblazers. Uh, we are going to get into the, the ins and outs of his career and sort of the art of GMing. It's a really fun show, so let's get into it. Joining me now, you know him from a nine-year tenure running your Portland Trailblazers and other stops in the Pacific Northwest. None other than Bob Witsit, Trader Bob. How you doing, Bob? Thanks for joining the program. Uh, I'm doing fine, Mike. Thanks for having me. So um, w- let's just get to it. You got a book coming out, Game Changers, an insider story of the Sonics resurgence, the Trailblazers turnaround, and the deal that saved the Seahawks. It's coming out October 10th, available right now for pre-order as you're listening to this program. I want to let you talk about the book. But in the book, you discuss... Your tenure with the Blazers from 94 to 2003 and all of the sort of rebuilding and re- retooling that went into that. Right now, the Portland Trailblazers find themselves in a not too dissimilar place than when you took over in 1994. You take over in July of 94. By the spring of 95, Clyde Drexler is playing for another basketball team, ending a, ending a legendary tenure. The Blazers find themselves perhaps trading another franchise icon here in the coming months. Can you walk us through what that was, your first few months on the job when you had to make these big, you know, franchise altering decisions? You would not believe how many times I've been asked the question about Dame and the Blazers in the last three months. And it is eerily similar to my first year with Portland. Um, literally the first week in Portland, um, Clyde came in and demanded a trade. And uh, I don't know the exact numbers. I'd have to look them up there in the book. But Clyde had played something like 11 years with the Blazers. He had several years left on his contract, including some very big back-ended salaries. Dame has played something like 11 years for the Blazers and has three or four years left. It's all relative, but very big numbers. And uh, Clyde is or was the best player for Portland. Dame is or was the best player for Portland. In, in any event, both iconic players, beloved players, and Hall of Fame type players. So uh, what they're going through now is the first thing. I, before I even found a place to live, I, I'm dealing with Clyde's situation. So um, I'm always asked, what would you do? What would you do? Well, the, the shorter answer is it doesn't matter what I would do. It only matters what the Blazers will or won't do. But what I tried to do with Clyde was, first of all, he did not want to report to training camp. He, he wanted a new contract. That's what he right. wanted. And he'd gotten a, a balloon year added on for a couple years in a row, and he just kind of thought that was the summer ritual. You just always put another 10 mil at the back end, and life is good. Well, when Paul decided no more of that, he demanded the trade, and he started by saying, I'm not going to come to training camp. 
And, you know, once he calmed down, we had a good set of meetings and he understood that, uh, one, I was committed to helping him find a new home. But number two, you can't be a jerk and not show up because you'll drive your market value down. And I'm not going to do a deal that's bad for the team. You know, I want to do a deal that's good for Clyde, but I also want to do a deal that's good for the Blazers. So he came into camp and he was great. Then I think our first two games that year, we were playing in Japan and literally he was not going to get on the plane. And I was talking him into it at the airport. Same speech. Look at Clyde. These deals don't get done in five minutes. I've made about 5,000 trades. I'll get something done, but just play be Clyde Drexler because you don't know who's watching. But believe me, there's teams watching that I'll be talking to that you won't even know about. And they'll want to make sure that as you're getting a little older, that you're still Clyde Drexler. And he played fantastic. He had, a, you know, we, and he got a little antsy during the, the first month or two of the season. A couple more of the, I'm not going to play. My back's going to be sore. You fill in the blank. But uh, good for Clyde. He he played and he played very well. And then I did what, what, what I needed to do. I found whatever deals were out there for Clyde. And then and Clyde really just wanted to go to a bad team because he thought if he went to a bad team, he'd have the leverage to get a better contract. And I said to Clyde, I, I disagree with you. I think, number one, you need to go somewhere where you can win a championship. And your legacy, 20 years from now, when you're somewhere wearing a championship ring, I hope you call me up and say, <laughs> good thinking. But equally important, Clyde, if you're a part of a championship team, that's the best way to get another year tacked onto your deal is you're a key guy on a championship team. So um, we ended up making a deal with Houston. I think it was probably near the trade deadline, if I remember, or at least in February. Yeah. Uh, they were they were not they'd won it the year before, so they were the, the defending champs. But they were probably in sixth position, I think, uh, or at least they ended up seated sixth in the playoffs. And Clyde was a key part of helping them get their second championship. And then, true to form, as a member of a championship team, he got the extension he was looking for. And, and ironically, Houston was home. And so it worked out great for Clyde. And but, but we made sure we got a deal that fit within the direction we were trying to go. Uh, but we also didn't want to mislead our, our, our franchise player and tell him we, we would get something done. And then, you know, it would have been really difficult for me to be looking at him post-trade deadline. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> Um, you know, there is some reporting that there was a, at least some consideration on your end of trading Clyde Drexler to the Seattle Supersonics. How real is that? Well, that's very real. I, I talk about it, that in the book. I, um, you know, when I left Seattle, we had the best record in the league at 63 and 19, but we got upset in the first round that year. And so I knew, first of all, George Carl wanted Clyde Drexler in the worst way. I knew that if we traded uh, Clyde for a package that involved Kendall Gill, a younger two-guard, good player, but not nearly as good as Clyde, that honestly the Sonics would win the championship. So it was a hard deal for me to consider doing. It would have been great for Clyde. Clyde wanted to go there. George wanted him. And I put the. And it took a long time for Paul and I to collectively agree that we would do that. Paul's from Seattle. I'm from Seattle. You. What do we do? We trade the franchise player to the arch rivals and he right. gets a ring. I mean, we would have, it would have been tough, but you ultimately have to do what the right thing is. So Paul and I finally said that 
that's the right thing for the our franchise, even though we'll get beat up by the media, and it's the right thing for Clyde. So I made the offer to uh, Wally Walker, and uh, we thought it'd be done in five minutes. And then as the days lingered on, and I kept getting calls from George and Clyde, why isn't the deal done? I finally got back to Wally, and Wally said, you know, I just can't take that one upstairs because if the owner thinks you pull one over on us, you know, and, and Wally was a brand-new GM, I tried to explain to him, I said, Wally, you got the easy part of the deal. You know, you're going to win the whole thing. <laughs> right. I got the hard part of the deal. I'm the new guy, new market, trading them to my old team, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was telling the absolute truth. But I think sometimes when you're new at the job, you it takes a little while before you kind of, you know, if he wants to trade with me, he must know something I don't know. Well, that, <laughs> no, I was trying to rebuild and you were trying to camp off a championship. So usually trades are done where you have two teams going in different directions. And that's why the deal makes sense for both sides. You mentioned um, sort of that open communication and being honest with a player. If if you are dealing with Damian Lillard now in camp, how do you sort of, maybe not like what deal do you make, but how do you... How do you approach him in the next couple of weeks to kind of make sure that this thing continues to kind of go in smooth waters? Well, my philosophy has always been tell the players the truth. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to tell them everything they want to know. I might just say, hey, uh, you're not going to be privy to that, but I will not lie to them. So if they ever say, would you trade me? The answer is always, yeah, I would trade you. Am I looking <laughs> to trade you? No. But to say I wouldn't trade you, I, I, you know, there's probably only one guy each year I would say that I would not trade him, and that guy's probably not on my team. So right. I think uh, what I would do is just be honest. I'd say uh, I may not even tell them the, the teams we're talking to. I certainly wouldn't limit my search to one team, even if the player only asked for, to go to one team. Um, my universe is 29 teams. And I hope I could get a situation where I could bring multiple deals back that made sense for my team. And at that point, I'd bring my player in and say, look, I'm going to trade you. And there's two, three, four, however many teams I'm comfortable with trading you to because the deals are equally good. Right. And at that point, only with a player like Dame or Clyde, uh, because of the respect I'd kind of let them choose their their landing spot. And I actually did this with Jack Sigma, my first, literally my first week on the job as a 30-year-old president and GM with the Sonics. And he was the last member of the championship team. He was beloved. He was iconic. And, you know, I ended up trading him to Milwaukee. So I, I've been through that before. Then I was through it with Clyde. But uh, when they're that important a player, I think they, they're, they're owed a different kind of respect. But you still have to do the job that's best for your franchise. Today's show is brought to you by FanDuel, and the NFL season is here, and why not snap into action with America's number one sports book right now? New customers get $200 in bonus bets, guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action than right now. The app is easy to use. There's a whole bunch of betting options. So whatever action you're looking for, you're going to find it like spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. It's all there waiting for you. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and kick off the NFL season. That's FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. All right. Here's the rest of my conversation with Bob Whitson. Would you have gotten this, the deal you ended up getting for Clyde without being patient and waiting till February? I think it was a couple weeks, maybe two weeks before the deadline you ended up 
if sending him to Houston. But if you had, if in July when he did come into your office and you'd been on the job for a week <laughs> or whatever it was, three three days onto the job, would you have would would that deal have been there, or did patience work in your favor the way it might uh, work? That deal was not there, and there weren't any good deals there because, as good as Clyde was. Um, he was probably 33. I'm just guessing uh, how old he was at the time, and he probably had you know three, two, three, or four more years. And the and the back years were big, so it's a, a really big cap hit. And if you think about it, not too many teams would want Clyde. The only teams that would want him should be teams that are in a championship run, right? And that's a limited number every year. And with backloaded contracts for a guy who's aging, it's it's a little more challenging. So it, you always think great player everybody wants them well not necessarily because teams are in different situations at different times so um and whatever houston offered early on was nothing i know there was no first round pick in there so sometimes you have to let people know that it's not a fire sale it's not a panic drill the player's not going to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season i've got them for x number of more years right and they always come in place sooner or later because they're not going to give up however many millions of dollars a year. And if they're great players, most great players like to play. Right. So, um, but you can also go the other way. You can wait too long. You could miss the best deal. And then you go back to that best deal and that ship has sailed. And now you're in a spiral the other way. So you really need to know the market. You really know to, need to know what's out there. And and there's certainly negotiation involved, but you you know the hardest part about making trades is knowing when to say yes. Post Clyde, um, the team wasn't bad. I think I think the post this post Dame era, they, they might be bad. But you guys did, made the playoffs every year of your tenure until like, through the 2003 season. Um, the Blazers never they never got bad. In fact, they got really good shortly thereafter, and we're in the and they win the Western Conference Finals, arguably the second best team in the league, if not the best. But part of that was creating this sort of media-created idea of the jail blazers. This, in some ways, is a lot of people what they associate your legacy with is making trades and building the trailblazers, I don't know, entity. How do you, how did you navigate sort of that media scrutiny? I, I believe a, a phrase coined by the Willamette Week and then adopted by local newspaper columnists. How, how did you, as, as the architect of the jail blazers, how did you navigate that? It didn't bother me at all because I look at it this way. Number one, they're talking about us. And if that helps the nation talk about us, that's a good thing. My friend Jack McCluskey, who was the GM of the Detroit Pistons, they were the bad boys. And that's not exactly a friendly phrase, but it was actually the bad boys and there was a respect to it. Uh, around the country, um, the jailblazers, again, you don't like the moniker so much. You wish it would be something else. But uh, probably three-quarters of the teams they don't even talk about. They talked about us because we were good. Uh, factually, nobody ever was arrested or went to jail. Or did During my watch, there was guys arrested before I got there, guys arrested after I left. Uh, we Certainly, we had some characters on the team. No question about that. But the brand of basketball we played was we competed, we were hard, we were athletic, we were great. As you said, we made the playoffs every year. Um, we averaged 50 wins a year for the nine years I was there. And I know a lot of owners because I get calls from them. If they could get to 50 wins once, 
they might have an, a, a, a party, you know, they're just so excited. So, you know, I wish it would have had a different name, like, you know, the Rose City, uh, you know, whatever. But trail, trail and jail, are, you know, it's a pretty easy thing. So you can't let it, uh, you, you can chase your time trying to explain the facts and this and that. But the fact that they picked a name, it's a little bit like Al Davis and his Raiders or the Pirates, you know, sometimes being the bad guy is not a bad thing because, you know, people look at you and go, hey, that's a bad team there. But boy, do they play hard, man. Nobody wanted to play against us because we were really good. And that's what we were trying to be, really good. Is there a move from that era that kind of, I don't know, exemplifies or 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 is it just like a great example of sort of your approach to team building? Because uh, that's sort of the bulk of your run. Is there, is there a move in there that you point to and say, kind of, this is this is how I approached building a basketball team? Yes, uh, I wrote in the book when Paul interviewed me uh, for the job. One of the things he wanted to know was you know, everybody wants to just be lousy for three or four years, get all these lottery picks and, and rebuild. And the guys who want to rebuild have never built, but they say they want to rebuild. And you go, <laughs> wow, you're going to rebuild, but you never built. But anyway, that seems to be an easy way to get a long-term contract and not be accountable and be lousy for a bunch of years. And then maybe you'll get it going. And I told Paul, I said, it's a lot harder to be good and to stay good. And he said, well, that's what I want. I don't want to be bad. I'm going to move into a new arena. We've got to sell, you know, six, seven, eight thousand more tickets and we can't do it with a non-playoff team. How are you going to do it? So I explained to him my uh, NBA chess philosophy, which was if I can take non-rotation players into the bench guys or, or assets that really don't have any value and go get a talented player that has baggage because if the talented player did not have baggage, you could never get them for your end of the bench guys. But if I could get somebody like that and then do the cleanup, if you will, and get something out of that player for a year or two or three, where they're a, a key player on a really good team versus a good player with baggage on a bad team, I could then move that guy to another team and get, the good player who's a good person kind of pick. He says, well, give, give me an example. I said, well, I don't want to bore you too much, but let's just take the uh, uh, olden Polonese to the Clippers for uh, underperforming Benoit Benjamin, a couple of good years out of Benjamin. And then we parlayed that into the final piece, which was Sam Perkins, right. who was everything we wanted in a championship team. And probably the classic chess move I made with the Blazers was taking some non-rotation pieces like James Robinson and Billy Curley, trading them to the Minnesota Timberwolves, who were a bad team, never made the playoffs, and had a very talented but, uh, uh, shall we say, high-maintenance guy, J.R. Ryder, brought J.R. to Portland. And, and don't get me wrong, he was high-maintenance, and he was hard to manage, and he was a free spirit. And I even talk about it in the book, the time he left in the, in the middle of a game. <laughs> And literally with his uniform on and drove out. And I, in the parking garage, I had to tell JR, if you drive out of here, you're suspended. And he did, and I did, and that was that. But anyway, uh, we got to the conference finals with JR. And then suddenly, I had four or five teams in the NBA that wanted JR. Two or three years earlier, nobody would even return a phone call from the Timberwolves on JR. I then traded them to Atlanta for Steve Smith, a former All Star, 
a J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award winner, a really good player at the same position. And then we were even better the next year. But you have to be willing to take some heat and understand that the interim period with a guy like J.R. is really an interim period, but you can't tell the world that. You can't really tell them how, what your next move you're trying to make is, or you'll never be able to make the move. So you got to be willing to take some heat and you got to be willing to put the energy in to get something out of that guy. And then you got to know how and when to get a deal done that that's better than what you have, because sooner or later that player will implode on you. So you, and ironically, after we traded Jr., he failed in Atlanta, he failed in Denver, he failed with the Lakers. So uh, maybe we made it look good, but we had to put a lot of hard work into to get the mileage out of them that we did. It seems like a lot of um, the keys to your success is an appetite for risk. Uh, do you think you had more of an appetite to take risks than maybe some of your peers in the league at the same time? I don't think you want to take risks just to take risks. Nobody wants to do that. This is our job. It's our livelihood. Many uh, GMs are happy just to be employed and get the next contract versus uh, doing what you got to do to try to win. Uh, I've always thought if you really believe it to make your team better, do it. And oftentimes that comes with a big risk because if it doesn't work out, you'll get fired. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, I mean risk-taking is part of the business, but um, if you do your homework properly and you believe it's, it, it'll be a successful deal, um, don't be shy. Go ahead and do the deal. Uh, I think the the sort of the trade that that Blazer fans of a little bit a little bit younger who who sort of the, they remember the tail end of of your tenure there they get a little gun shy about trading young players because of the Jermaine O'Neal deal. When you look back on that deal, do you have regrets or do you feel like at the time it led you to where you wanted to be? No, I, I mean if I could do a deal over, if I had the authority to do that deal over, I, I would keep Jermaine. I mean, I drafted Jermaine. Yeah, uh, I was a guy developing him. We had him. I knew he was going to be great. It wasn't a, I think he'll be great when I drafted him. He was going to be great. He, uh, The coach didn't like him. Uh, big problems with the coach. <clears throat> and we were in a window to win it all. And uh, Dale Davis was still a good veteran player for a year or two. But uh, if it was up to me when we couldn't re-sign Brian Grant because Paul wouldn't go seven years, I would have just said, let Brian go for nothing and let, let Jermaine go into that spot. So uh, I would agree. We, in general, always hang on to the young guy as opposed to the aging veteran. Is that something that you learned or something that – is that like a reflection on Jermaine O'Neal or or is that um, kind of just no. you, you couldn't follow that advice at the time because, like you said, you were in a, sort of that championship window? Well, no, the coach wanted him out. That's number right. one. And, and he I wanted promised, a new contract, right? No, I got a new contract out of him. But part of the um, – he was unrestricted, wasn't going to come back because the coach hated him. I talked Jermaine into a four-year deal with the understanding if he didn't get to play, um, I would trade him. And the coach didn't play him the first year of the four-year deal. So I had to live up to my word. And, uh, you know. Maybe we would have let the coach go and keep the player, and that might have been a better deal, but we, we, we chose to let the coach try to finish it out. 
The book is Game Changer, an insider story of the Sonics resurgence, the Trailblazers turnaround, and the deal that saved the Seahawks. What can Blazer fans, basketball fans, and sports fans in general expect from this book, which comes out October 10th, available right now for pre-order? If you love the NBA, you're going to love the book. There's a lot of great stories from uh, my days in, in Portland with the Trailblazers, my days with the Sonics. If you like the NFL, there's some great Seahawks stories in there. Uh, if you want to know what a GM really does, I, I talk about that. I have a chapter on how to negotiate and, and a lot of examples on how I use those uh, various styles and player trades and player signings. Um, I talk about how to get a job in professional sports. So it's a little bit of everything for the, the true sports fan. It's an easy read. I have 16 pages of pictures. So it's uh, I tried to write it for the fans in a, in a very easy to read format. Do, are you still a fan of the league? Like, are, do you pay close attention to the Blazers and the, and the NBA? Very committed. I'm working uh, with a company called Diamond Sports. We we pro we broadcast over half the NBA's games. Um, I'm very committed to helping bring a team back to Seattle, and I hope we can get that done. And I watch more NBA basketball than I ever have, so I'm very current and very, you know, very much a fan. Well, good, because this is this is the show for for diehards like you, Bob. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. It was uh, it was a it was a pleasure to talk to you. All right, thank you, Mike. Thanks again to Bob for joining the program. The book is Game Changer: An Insider Story of the Sonics Resurgence, the Trailblazers' Turnaround, and the Deal That Saved the Seahawks. Available October 10th. You can pre-order it right now. Uh, it's going to be a whole bunch of fun. I'm going to read it and I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, come back for more shows the rest of the week, dear listeners. We're continuing our preview series uh, running up to training camp. Next two weeks, we're going to preview every player on the roster uh, heading into training camp, which starts early October. Tomorrow's episode, Shade and Sharp. We're back five days a week wherever you get podcasts. I appreciate you listening. I'll talk to you soon.